Welcome to the Mokuchi Studio podcast, a podcast centered around Japanese woodworking and related topics. I'm your host, Jan Jiger, and today we have joining us Jim Blauvelt from Bluefield Joiners out of Connecticut. Hey, welcome. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing okay. Okay. All right. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. You're joining us from Taftville, Taftville, Connecticut. Yes, Taftville, Connecticut, Eastern Connecticut. From what I hear, you've been there quite some time. I think uh, almost 30 years. Wow. <laughs> and. And before that? Before that, I was living out of a suitcase. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll get to yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> were, you, but were, you, were you born in Connecticut? Is that? I was born uh, uh, closer to the New York border. Oh, I see. I see, I see, I see. On the other side of the uh -huh. state. Uh, my father was a policeman. Mm -hmm. My mother, a secretary, mm -hmm. um, lived in a basically suburban New York, although it was uh, indeed Connecticut. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> my family goes uh, back to the 1600s uh, in eastern or western Connecticut in uh, New York. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. 1600s. Wow. That's great. Dutch traders. Mm. Well, wonderful. So you've had, you know, you've been doing woodworking for, it seems like, your whole life. Yeah, my whole life. Uh, I got my start um, actually in, uh, in high school. Uh, my high school had a really strong uh, industrial arts program. Mm. Um, I had a, uh, a woodshop teacher who... I think kind of took pity on me. I wasn't a very good academic student, but I had some uh, ability with my hands. So he really promoted that and gave me uh, lots of opportunity to work in the shop. Uh, in high school, uh, I was actually using the wood shop and selling furniture at a pretty young age. Oh, that's great. I, I also, uh, I had a, a neighbor um, growing up, um, who owned an antique shop and from a, a really young age, um, I, uh, was able to, um, learn a little bit about furniture by fixing antiques in, uh, in his barn. Um, so he gave me, uh, a lot of grubby work to do when I was really young. Oh. Uh, so I've always been around, uh, tools and woodworking. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, as a young kid, Tools were really my toys. Kind of an interesting way for a young person to get validation was through working. So mm. I've always done that. Of course, growing up on the water, there were always boats to be worked on and, uh, you know, things of that nature. So I was never really far from a toolbox. Mm. And I, I, I recently listened to a, a little presentation you gave. Oh, my goodness. A long time ago, you had no white hair. Um, no, <laughs> it uh, was in I think New Hampshire Guild of Woodworkers. Uh, right, that was a, a short synopsis I did. It's kind of interesting. Every now and then, I stumble upon that, and it's fun to watch. Yeah, yeah that old uh, New Hampshire Woodworkers Guild synopsis. Someone. Uh, actually jumped me with a, a pretty complicated joint uh, to do as a demonstration that I'd never done before. So that was a, that was an interesting time. Oh, yeah, the one at the very end, right? Where there's a... Yeah. Yeah, it, it shows yeah, that, end grain. that end grain. That end grain. Uh, it's a corner joint. Interesting. Um, a corner joint. Yeah, of all the joints that someone could ask me to cut, it was uh, one of those... Those are always fun. I always enjoyed doing uh, doing that that sort of thing. 
Yeah, so so you gave some demonstration of joinery and then had samples of joinery and but in the very beginning you introduced yourself and uh there's a couple of things there I thought it would be fun to uh uh there's one story from when you were 12 years old on a Saturday morning you were home and uh your dad said oh you should stick around somebody's coming to the house to do some work yeah there was a a really interesting carpenter um I was fortunate enough to be able to um, get close to when I was a kid. And I think probably, um, you know, there have been many uh, mentors that I've had in the course of my life. Um, And usually they were some form of craftsman. Uh, But this guy came and built uh, a flight of stairs on on the Victorian house that we lived in uh, using nothing but hand tools. And, uh, that, that had a, a long lasting impression on me. Um, you know, he also did things like, uh, you know, making new, um, window sash or, um, you know, screen sash for our quite large screen porch. So, uh, I was exposed to, you know, craftsmen, uh, from an early age, a lot of, uh, my uh, close relatives, cousins, and uncles um, were were craftsmen, and I was always in the middle of that. You know, growing up, it was uh, I had I had opportunities to see and hear craftsmen working, and I think I always uh, drifted towards that. I think even in as early as junior high school, I knew that I would be uh, a carpenter. Mm-hmm. It was all I really was interested in doing. Mm-hmm. My first real exposure to commercial woodworking was shortly after graduating high school. Uh, I worked for a stair builder and door maker uh, in Connecticut and really got a, a taste for, you know, that type of woodworking and worked as a, a cabinet maker in his shop for a number of years. And really, that is kind of what set my foundation for how I go about, you know, layout and uh, methods of work to this day. Um, I still use, <clears throat> his name was uh, Willis Holt, Holt Millwork. He came up in the time when you didn't go to Lowe's or Home Depot to buy a door or a window. Um, you went to a sash maker. So he was a real old world uh, woodworker that made um, custom windows and doors and staircases, basic architectural millwork prior to shops being mechanized. Um, although we did use, you know, quite a bit of machinery, you know, his foundation was uh, kind of old world. So I got a, a big taste to that uh, right at the beginning, you know, using story poles and things like that in order to lay out correctly. And I was introduced to um, kind of the advanced uh, geometry and mathematics uh, used in building, um, which he was a real stickler for. You know, my initial taste of commercial woodworking was custom architectural millwork. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, from there, it was kind of, it's kind of an interesting story I got a friend of mine was uh, was going to Wendell Castle School of Woodworking up in Rochester, New York, and I visited him uh, one weekend. And although being a professional um, cabinet maker for a few years, visiting that school was really my first introduction to folks using only hand tools to make furniture and fine joinery. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of that going on in uh, in the mill workshop I worked in. Although we did cut joinery, uh, it was mostly, you know, mortise and tenon work that was mechanized. You know, we had a tenoner and we had a mortise machine. But seeing the first year students at Wendell Castle School and then also visiting the School of the American Craftsmen uh, there um, at uh, RIT really kind of opened my eyes to and, you know, de- I developed a desire uh, to learn hand tool woodworking from there. Shortly after my visit to those two wonderful woodworking schools, 
I met who would be my first teacher, um, Robert Meadow. Robert Meadow was, uh, he was an instrument maker. Um, he made violins and cellos and lutes, but he was also a importer of Japanese tools. So when I met him and started, uh, taking, uh, weekly workshops, um, at his studio, um, that was my real first introduction into hand tool work. So my, my introduction to using hand tools started as using Japanese tools. Mm. Um, so, uh, I got a, I got a really good indoctrination into Japanese hand tools from an importer and he was highly, highly skilled with, uh, with the tools. Um, and he, um, provided me a space and the resources to develop my own hand skill. Um, he didn't live very far, uh, away. And for a time, uh, I would just go to his, uh, his workshops, which he, I think back then it was every other weekend, but before too long, I actually moved there and, uh, spent the time, uh, working in his instrument shop, um, using Japanese hand tools, uh, to, I was basically a parts maker. Um, I would, I would prep material for instruments, uh, make violin tops and backs completely flat. And I would prepare glue joints or cut out blanks for necks. Um, I never actually completed an instrument, but I did work on, work on parts. And it was because of the opportunities that he gave me, I primarily developed a sharpening skill and skill to set up hand planes. And then from there, uh, I'm trying to think the first bit of Japanese architecture I saw was I was invited um, by a friend. She was from Japan. She was also a woodworker. Invited me to a tea ceremony at Urasenke in, in New York City. Oh, yeah. And uh, when I went to Urasenke in New York City, that was my real first exposure to a tea ceremony room and the architecture involved in tea ceremony. Yeah, so in seeing, actually seeing, um, you know, my first example of skia, I fell in love with that architectural style. And from there, seeked out every opportunity I could get to participate in that type of construction. And it, was, it wasn't an easy thing. You know, back then there wasn't a whole lot of uh, Japanese woodworking going on. I had heard of uh, Len Brackett. I think there was a, at that time, I think it was back in the mid, maybe late 80s when uh, Len's Tiburon house was featured in fine uh, home building magazine. Um, so I knew about Len Brackett uh, and uh, I also had heard of uh, Makoto Imai. He had actually built Robert Meadows' violin studio, which was a really simple I think it was a 24 mat sized timber frame, very simple with shoji and sliding wooden doors and a genkan. And um, so that was really um, all I knew about Imai-san at the time. I think at that time he had actually gone back to Japan to work his visa out, but I didn't actually get to meet him uh, until years later. I had read, I forget in what magazine it was, uh, there was an ad. Um, there was a Japanese carpenter in Atlanta looking for carpenters. So I packed up my car and moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And that was my, uh, my first real experience with working for a, a Japanese carpenter. Toshihiro Sahara was uh, from the Tokyo area and moved to the United States shortly after uh, World War II. Um, he was, he was young. I think he was actually too young to engage in the war. But, uh, after the war, he was befriended by Presbyterian missionaries. And, uh, he came to Atlanta to study, uh, in the seminary and was a Presbyterian minister. Oh, how it's kind of a weird mix yeah. being a, a Japanese carpenter, but also a, a Presbyterian minister living in the deep south uh right after 
the war. Right, right after the war, right. So his his uh, his background in the United States was actually building track houses, two by four construction, and then after doing that for thirty or so years, started his own shop. I know in Japan he was uh, an apprentice to a gentleman that um, built sets for Kabuki theater. So he did have a. Uh, he did go through a traditional apprenticeship as a young man, but uh, in the States, primarily did Japanese rooms for American people. He did uh, build a couple of tea houses down there. Now, when I worked for him, uh, someone who's actually become a dear friend of mine, he's from Chiba. His name is Shuji Tamura. Uh, he was a. Chiba is in Japan. Yeah, so uh, uh, a man from Japan who was an embroiderer, mm. a traditional Japanese embroiderer, moved his family to Atlanta and set up a school to teach embroidery, mm. uh, to teach Japanese embroidery to Americans. Uh, not only Americans, people come from all over the world to, to study under him. I had the opportunity um, while working for Sahara-san was to build not only renovate the house that they bought in Georgia to make it more Japanese, mm -hmm. we built his school. And with uh, Mr. Tamara, uh, he actually introduced me to a lot of the, um, I suppose, philosophy around what it means to be shokurin and kind of prepared me um, emotionally to um, step into and get a taste of Japanese culture by way of architecture. Mm. And he was a, uh, he was absolutely a brilliant man. I count him as one of my, my dearest, dearest friends and mentors. Mm. And he loved carpentry also. So I think, you know, with me working on his project, uh, it was easy for him to extend his hand to a, a Westerner. Mm. So Sahara gave me some pretty good opportunity. The money wasn't that great. And I really wanted to do more and more um, traditional type work when uh, the opportunity came for me to um, actually go to the West Coast and work with uh, Makoto Imai. Um, so that's kind of uh, the stepping stone I, I made from East Coast to West Coast was, uh, you know, Imai-san had a big project coming up and was looking for uh, an apprentice. And although he wouldn't make a commitment to me, he did give me the invite mm. and, you know, told me that I could, you know, come out and see his shop and see the type of work that he was doing. And I think, you know, the fit was good at the time because, you know, right off the bat, I showed up at his shop with, you know, a lot of the skills needed to function in a professional atmosphere with Japanese carpenters. You know, I could use a plane, I could sharpen, I had tools. So I wasn't coming in uh, completely blind and actually uh, stayed and worked uh, with Himai-san for a number of years. Mm. And I remember the day when, uh, you know, he, he actually, it was maybe after three or four months of, uh, of working. And at the time I was basically getting paid uh, room and board and a carton of smokes. Uh -huh. In a case of beer, <laughs> you know, he would, uh, he provided me a, a place to stay. And then once, uh, you know, I think I might've maybe proved myself a little bit. He put me on the payroll and I became a, a paid worker for mm -hmm. him and ended up working, um, there for, for four or five years for, for my son, mm -hmm. kind of my, my graduating project, uh, for him, I remember it uh, very well. Uh, Fort Wright Institute in Spokane, Washington um, was an old um, army base, and it was purchased by Mukogawa Daigako, uh, a Japanese girls' college. They were building a, a college for Japanese women that were studying English. They were English majors. So for a semester, the students would come to Fort Wright mm. and uh, have their English teachings. And uh, at that time, Takenaka Construction Company, the the big oh. 
design company in in uh, Japan. Like the same Takenaka as the museum. Yes, yeah, that big that big uh, architectural firm was was uh, doing the work on Fort Wright. One of the projects was uh, a traditional tea house, a large tea room, and I think that was maybe a six month long project. And I was given uh, the opportunity to kind of lead a, a large portion of that project. So that was like one of the real kind of indoctrinations in working with and working for Japanese craftsmen. Mm. That was a fun project. Yeah, there were others too. Sahara had a couple of big commercial jobs in Atlanta that involved, uh, at that time, you know, he would bring carpenters from Japan over. So I did actually work with professional Japanese craftsmen before, mm. but uh, Fort Wright Institute was a real, that was when I was really given a uh, responsibility to work on kind of a real project. Uh-huh. So being a real project, was it a room built inside of another room as freestanding or... Uh, there were there were uh, exterior elements, bridges, uh, asmaya, oh, oh. small small uh, garden structures. The primary room was in a, a in a huge brick building, more of a, a a Japanese trim out than a structure. Oh, I see, I see. I believe I don't know where or how. I believe I came across a picture, a group picture, on that project. And the the tea house in um in Spokane, and I think Dale, I think Dale actually was involved in some of the permitting on that on that project. He held a a Washington State uh, contractor's license, oh. um. So I th- I'm pretty sure Imaisan may have uh, piggybacked on Dale's mm-hmm. uh, license in order to do that project. So I think the the photo you're referring to was uh, Imai-san's primary crew. I think there were four of us. Um, and then a couple of other folks that were kind of involved on the periphery, Dale, and uh, there were a, a couple of other Japanese folks from San Francisco that came up to help us with logistics like cooking mm-hmm. and things like that. I think part of, part of Imai's crew, maybe Gary... Figure his last yep, name. Yep, Gary Bella. Bella. Gary Bella. Great craftsman. There was another guy in the background, younger guy, Scott Nearing, maybe showed up. Scott Nearing. Yeah. That was, Scott Nearing was actually uh although he never actually uh came to work um with us on that project, he happened to be there visiting that weekend, got himself in the photo. Interesting. <laughs> mm. He's an incre- he's an incredible craftsman also and a been a lifelong true follower of Imai San. Mm-hmm. I think at that time he was actually uh, kind of baiting Imai San with a project that I don't think ever transpired. Um, but that was the reason for Scott's visit was to come and meet Imai San and see the project and try and uh, get me my son to come to the east coast to build a timber frame but i don't think it ever happened mm. yes scott is in last i heard vermont he's been in vermont for so long yeah he's kind of fell off the radar i know he at one point he was uh heavily involved in uh, a lot of the online forums i think the last i spoke with him it's probably been 15 years Although uh, I do pass by his shop uh, every summer, and I still see he's there. So at some point, I should stop in and say hello. Oh, yes. Yes, you should. So shortly after the the Spokane project, I actually went to Japan. Mm. I pretty much went to Japan with the promise of an interview. Ura Senke was looking for an English-speaking carpenter. Oh. Um. So uh, I pretty much, before I left California, I had lined up uh, an interview with the head architect um, for Urasenke. And when I got there, one of Imai-san's uh, older apprentices who had moved to Japan 
maybe a decade before, maybe even longer, 15 years before, hooked me up with some work. Um, and I worked for a, a construction company that built new Japanese houses. Nothing very fancy, but it did give me an opportunity to actually support myself while I was in Japan. Mm-hmm. The uh, interview with Uda Senke um, actually didn't uh, pan out for me. Uh, what ended up happening was I had the interview. Um, I met uh, Oda-san, uh, the head carpenter, um, and he was he was uh, interested in in me working. At that time, my visa was getting ready to expire for the second time, so they said, you know, go back to the states um, and we'll put your visa through. And then after three or four months, uh, I got the call, you know, basically telling me that. Uh, it wouldn't be possible for them to get me a visa. Mm. I would uh, need to marry a Japanese girl or <laughs> find another find another form of sponsorship. Um, and at that at that time, uh, I had just met uh, the woman who would, was going to be my wife, and uh, kind of lost interest in going back to Japan, uh, and basically started uh, Bluefield Joiners from there. Mm. So, so you were. In Japan, maybe six months or so. Six yeah. six months, yeah, six typically months. Typically three months. And you said that the construction company, were those uh, just simplified timber frames or, or Western um, built? It was, uh, it, they, they did kind of a modern version of traditional Japanese timber frames. There was joinery. When I was in Japan working for that company, you probably know um, uh, in Kyoto, uh, there are a number of fairly large lumber yards um, where construction companies go to buy lumber for their projects. And if you buy uh, lumber at any particular lumber yard, they offer you shop space to actually build it. Um, so... Oh. Oh, I, I had no idea. The company I worked for didn't actually have a shop, but they would work out of the lumberyard space. The gentleman um, who owned the company, he never worked uh, as a carpenter. He was uh, kind of a shacho type, type of guy um, and just ran uh, the projects. His younger brother, whose name was actually Little Brother, <laughs> Tochan, uh, Tochan did all the all the layout, you know, under his under his guidance and under his layout. Maybe three or four other carpenters would, you know, cut all the parts necessary to raise a frame. Although there was, you know, certainly traditional joinery involved. You know, it's not like it is here when you do a traditional Japanese house. You have to make everything mm. um, over there. You can pretty much walk over to the rack and find kamoi and shiki and find parts. Everything is milled straight and ceiling boards. Everything is perfect. You know, a lot of it uh, nowadays has a finish on it. Wow! Uh, surprising, you know, to me back then was a lot of it was also veneer. You know, an incredible amount of veneer used in uh, modern Japanese construction. Yeah. We're, you know, coming from Yumai-san's shop, a lot of uh, the parts that we put into a house started out as a log. Working in Japan was a really an eye-opening experience for me. Um, I think in, uh, certainly in Yumai-san's shop, I was kind of living in a vacuum kind of put in a box of uh, seeing through Imai-san's eyes moving and, you know, working in Japan and actually seeing Japanese carpenters work was was really kind of mind-blowing uh, to me and eye-opening. Yeah. I think in this in the States, a lot of um, people that drift towards Japanese architectural woodworking are coming from a mindset of art. Yes. Whereas in Japan, they're coming at Japanese architectural from a point of craft. Yeah. Often one would even say trade. Trade, exactly. And in, in, and in Japan, uh, you know, uh, that's who I kind of hung around with uh, were tradespeople. Mm-hmm. 
most of the people I know in Japan went to vocational school after junior mm -hmm. high school. Um, they all made fun of me because I studied Japanese language from books, and they all told me I spoke like a girl. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really good to see the pace of a professional carpenter. Mm. It's a, it's a mind blowing thing to watch a really skilled kind of honed team uh, of carpenters build a house. So being exposed to that was, uh, was kind of fundamentally refreshing. Not a lot of talking, you know, uh, everyone focused, everyone has a task, yeah. uh, everyone doing, you know, trying to do their best. You know, I count myself fortunate to have been able to experience that. But the sounds of functioning wood shop while a house is being cut is an amazing mm. thing. You know, the sound that a hammer makes when it hits a chisel. Mm. Someone, you know, particularly like if I if I looked back when I was fumbling around with uh, with Robert Meadow trying to figure out how to get tools to function, if you could hear a professional using a hammer and a chisel, or if you could hear what a handsaw should sound like mm -hmm. as it's mm -hmm. cutting, those are kind of invaluable teaching tools that uh, not a lot of uh, Westerners get to experience. And I think it's getting better now with, uh, you know, Kezero Kai USA and uh, all the opportunities that folks have to ask questions online and there was none of that back in the day. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I I took uh, the only path that was uh, correct for me, which was to try and follow uh, opportunity wherever it sprung up, and let the um, particular opportunities and particular product projects be the the teacher. Mm -hmm. My son never taught anything. You know, he he might like if you if he saw you figure out nine things he might give you the 10th yeah. <laughs> but he would never sit you down and say this is how you do it you know he would always just say do it and then let the opportunity be the mm. teacher he was he was really good like that and uh, one of the other things he also used to say was if you want what i have you have to steal it <laughs> meaning you know, don't let them catch you watching, <laughs> but mm -hmm. watch. Yeah. Yeah, very, very focused inquiry. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah watching, uh, watching him work was like watching a dancer. Mm -hmm. You know, there was no wasted motion, you know, no... Uh, the confidence confidence is always always at a peak yeah i count myself fortunate to have been able to be around that something that you don't normally see in in western construction sites is a you know a carpenter that looks that smooth and that confident even doing something as simple as climbing around on a frame mm -hmm. amazing just amazing i don't know if you've ever seen uh Itamai-san in Japan. It's a whole trade um, set up. They do the foundation work for a house. They build the forms, but they also show up on raising day and they help put the frame up. Oh, no, I did not realize. They are the guys that are responsible for setting up. Uh, I don't think they even use uh, Maruta um, scaffolding anymore in Japan. Maybe they do. Um, I heard it's changed quite a bit in 30 or 35 years. But this truck would pull up with a truckload of round poles, boxes of hanger wire, and these guys would build the staging for a house out of, out of cedar poles. And uh, they would also be responsible for helping the head carpenter assemble the frame. Mm -hmm. They would literally throw... 15 or 20 guys at a three-story structure and by the end of the day the ridge mm -hmm. was up it was just amazing watching these guys climb around on a frame you know don't need ladders don't need ropes <laughs> chigatabi <laughs> split toe shoe with um that comes up much higher than the ankle 
really a really good grip, really flexible yet yeah, give you. I found a pair of Jigatabe to put on my feet when I worked there, and I wore them one day because I tripped over my big toe, and uh, I think I dislocated it. Actually, I hit I hit a pole so bad that I was like, "Nah, I'm using sneakers." Yes. <laughs> so yeah, I think my 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 uh, my taste of Japan, although invaluable. I was only there for a short period of time and only saw a fraction of, I'm sure, what someone living there for a long period of time would experience. Kind of like, you know, a blind man touching an elephant and trying to describe what it is, you know, that mm-hmm. story. So I think, you know, Japan was a lot like that for me, but I count myself fortunate to have had that opportunity. I also can't really uh, talk about my experience with Japanese carpentry without mentioning Jay Van Arsdale. Mm. You know, when I lived out on the West Coast, being immersed in Japanese culture by living with a Japanese family for a long period of time, you know, Jay was uh, was a, a wonderful friend, a really great sounding board for when uh, kind of my American arrogance would get the better of me and I would be able to go speak with Jay, having Jay as a a lifelong friend and mentor in Japanese woodworking. Although I've never worked with him, uh, he was invaluable, you know, when I, when I lived out there for sure. Yeah. So Jay's in Oakland, California, and you were living where with Imai again? Uh, We were up in Weaverville, uh, up in the Trinity Alps, um, but most of our work was in the Bay Area, so I'd visit Jay whenever we Mm. came down. You know, we did, with Emai-san, we did a lot of work uh, in the Bay Area. So, you know, making a a stop at Jay's shop where I'd give him an earful (laughs) was always always on Mm. the agenda. Then what, what would he say? Uh, he, Jay, Jay's a really interesting cat where he, he doesn't really say much. He just sits there and listens and waits until you tell yourself, uh, <laughs> you know, he, Jay's got more patience than, than most, I think. And he's also got a, a real love for, for the woodworking. And I think that was our bond and that's, and that's sprouted into something, you know, much, much larger. You know, I consider him uh, uh, one of my dearest, oldest friends. Mm. So then, uh, you know, starting Bluefield Joiners, you know, back after, you know, when I returned from Japan, you know, having, being much younger and having way more energy, it was uh, really easy to focus a career based entirely on Japanese architectural woodworking. Although, you know, opportunities on the East Coast were much, much smaller. I made a ton of shoji for a long time. That was uh, uh, the primary focus of my business was uh, internet sales of Japanese screens. And then from there, you know, I was fortunate enough to have uh, some larger architectural projects. Although um, uh, I was never really able to break into the design build opportunities. Um, so most of the work, um, that came across my bench were, were usually kind of steamrolled by an architect or a designer. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I constantly, I constantly found myself, uh, doing Japanese work, but to someone else's design. Oh yeah. That can be a little tough sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the, uh, one of the more fun projects in my career um, with Bluefield Joiners was uh, to do a restoration of a early 19th century um, entertainment house that was actually built in Kyoto in uh, 1913 and brought to the States. The man who um, commissioned the work was uh, Consulate General to Japan in 1913. Um, and he brought craftsmen here uh, to put up this. Uh, up th- there were a number of structures on the property. Long since his estate was subdivided into different parcels of land, and one client of mine wanted to have uh, 
uh, an entertainment house. It was basically a 12 mat, uh, room, uh, not, not skia more, uh, more showing style. Sukia being a tea house architecture and showing being more of a temple style architecture. Right. Right. And it was all cut out of uh clear heart redwood, um, which I thought was interesting at that time. Uh, Japan was importing redwood from the United States because it was so perfect, you know, really old growth, tight grained, hard, mm-hmm. um, beautiful material. And uh, that particular house was, parts of it were completely falling down. The roof was completely gone. The Genkan had, uh, had fallen down. Uh, a lot of the mudsills, the dodai were rotten. So it was kind of neat to be involved in the restoration of that. And then I've had the opportunity to do a couple of tea houses and other, you know, a lot of Western clientele, I'm sure you know, want uh, elements of Japanese architecture in a Western house. Mm, yeah. um, so they may may convert a room into a tatami mat room with a tokonoma or fancy roof boards. Um, yeah, so... I basically took one job after another, and here I am, <laughs> still doing it. Looking back, I remember seeing um, you were involved with building a stave church. Ah, uh, yeah, that was kind of an interesting project. It was a really slow time. One of the things about me is that, uh, and particularly the older I get, kind of the less I care about what it is I'm working on. Yeah. <laughs> So it was a, it was a slow time and I was looking for, for work and I saw, um, an ad, I think it was on Craigslist. A guy was looking for a timber framer. So I went and interviewed, you know, really wealthy customer in Lyme, Connecticut was building a copy, uh, an authentic copy, full scale of Borgen Stave Church. Now, Borgen Staves Church is uh, an 11th century Viking church. In Norway? Yes, in Norway. And then we were, we were to copy it. It's one of the last uh, standing uh, traditional stave churches. Uh, a lot of them, although there, I'm sure there are a number of them throughout Europe, the client had spent time there as a kid and wanted that church on his farm. And uh, basically, he provided truckloads of logs. <laughs> the Norwegian government wouldn't let us measure the church. So we basically, there's another uh, similar um, church that was constructed in uh, the uh, Black Hills in South Dakota. So we got to measure that. Mm. Um, that church was built in the 60s. Uh, so we went and measured that. Mostly we built the church from simple measurements that we took on site and photographs from books. And that, that project actually took, uh, took four years. Wow. Um, I came in after the first year, uh, the first year for a solid year, they did nothing but saw logs into parts. Mm. When I was hired, um, I was hired as joiner and basically was responsible for the layout of, uh, and construction of the church. And that was a, yeah, it was a four-year project. Maybe not 100% traditional. Um, we used a whole lot of uh, timber locks. Oh, <laughs> you know, lots of uh, lots of concrete. The foundation is, is something else. Um, but for the most part, we started from scratch and made this beautiful church to sit on a farm in someone's field and rural Connecticut. (laughs) I haven't been back to see it. Uh, It's not that far from me, um, but it's a gated community. And uh, although I was uh, responsible for the construction of the church, I never had uh, any direct communication with the client. Um, That all went through a a builder Mm -hmm. who has since passed. So I think if I went, I could probably tell the guard um, hey, I built that. Can I go look at it? And he might let me in, but he mm, might not. So. Wow, interesting. 
think one of the benefits of that project was that it was really, really close to home. And uh, at the time I was uh, fostering and getting ready to adopt my kids. So it was good to be, you know, a half hour from home and having steady work. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the real, that was the real yeah. plus for the, for That's that project. Perfect timing. And then I, I actually, uh, I, I don't really have any, uh, kind of emotional connection to a Christian church, but it was certainly a lot of fun to build, you know, working with big timbers and hand tools is, is always fun. Yeah. And I, I was able to sneak some Japanese joinery oh, yeah. <laughs> into the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the, uh, the corner joinery and the, you know, hip hips and valleys, the roof on that building is just absolutely incredible. And it has all the um, odd things that you run into, like hip and valley rafters that aren't 45 and different roof pitches coming together and working with large wood. It's all kind of the same. You know, it's all kind of the Mm -hmm. same. You know, I used uh, Sumitsubo everywhere on that structure. That ink part and ink line. So it's almost almost impossible nearly impossible to divorce my background in Japanese woodworking to anything I do, mm. you know? So even though it's a, a type of architecture um, completely removed from Japanese architecture, uh, a lot of the methods I used to build that um, were certainly things I learned uh, while focusing on Japanese woodworking. Um, we hand plane that entire church and like I said, all the layout was done uh, using what I learned in Japan, uh, using sumitsubo and sumisashi, you know, Japanese square for roof layout. Wow. All that. Oh, how neat. And hand plane, were you, was there others who knew how to hand plane or? Did... No, so no. You, so you hand plane though? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. There was there were a couple of guys that were interested uh, in in trying to learn how to uh, use Japanese plane. Even some really skilled uh, Western woodworkers, if you can't sharpen it on a Tormek, oh. they don't. They're not interested. <laughs> so uh, you know, it it takes a. I don't. I don't think a lot of people realize, particularly when they're just starting out getting a taste for Japanese tools, uh, the level of commitment it takes to get them to work. Yeah, it's it's maybe better. Jeez, if I knew what it would what it took when I started, I <laughs> it'd be I a little relate. daunting. Yeah. It'd be like, uh, I don't know. Uh, that seems like a lot of years. Yeah. Um, you know, and then, you know, to work an eight-hour day and then spend two more sharpening for the next day. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a big commitment. Yeah. Un- until you're in it, it is a difficult one to even understand. Because it's, well, it's not an intellectual understanding. No. I think once you're in it, it becomes obvious what's the next step and what needs to be done. And, right. And whether it makes intellectual sense or not, doesn't matter so much. You know what needs to be done for harmony to remain and things to move forward. So you you do what seems needed to be done, and um, and you keep going. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. So there is a there is a level of commitment to uh, to using Japanese hand tools that I think surpasses general Western understanding the kind of personal commitment to be shokunin. Uh, shokunin being craft person. Craftsman. Yeah, so that's, and that's always been kind of attractive to me anyway. I mean, I never, I never had an issue spending the time to make my tools function. Yeah, a, a, a teacher of mine equated it to uh, playing a sport playing an instrument there's no there's no limit to how much you can practice right 
And the more you put in, the more you get back out. Sure. So. Yeah, I found that to be true. Do you think you know, Michael Jordan was like, nah, nah, I think that's good enough. You know, <laughs> I'll just. I know what I'm doing now. I, I don't think I need to improve any anymore or go any further. Right? I'm thinking back to uh, the first Japanese plane I bought from Robert Meadow. It was shortly after. I think I had taken two or three workshops. And I had a lot of tools. I had a lot of Western tools. I had, I think I had every plane that Stanley made. They all functioned. And, you know, Robert was trying to sell me on a, on a hand plane. And, uh, I was like, nah, my, my planes are good. You know, I, I can use my planes. They work mm. fine. And he kept, you know, you need to, you know, you need to try this hand plane. I said, okay, I'll, I'll try it. And he brought out, you know, a board of, uh, of curly maple that was, uh, you know, going to be a part to an instrument. I think it was a cello back, you know, so it was a fairly large chunk of curly mm -hmm. maple he walked into the back room and i'm sure he was back there conditioning the soul I, uh, although i didn't mm -hmm. see it and he comes out and he pulls the plane out of a box and he's taking these just gorgeous shavings with it and then he puts it back in the box and i was like wow mm -hmm. you know, that's amazing i didn't realize how much went into setting that guy up in order for it to work oh yeah you know, kind of the, you know, quintessential salesman's mm. pitch, you know, you got to buy this one because look mm -hmm. what it could do, you know. And then over the course of the next few years, you know, certainly got a taste for exactly what goes into getting a plane to function at that level. Uh, I laugh, I laugh at myself because if I knew I probably would have <laughs> I'd probably be making Formica countertops. Oh, right yeah. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> have more free time, have a retirement plan, some vacation maybe. <laughs> sure. And then, uh, it, but it's absolutely wonderful to see, you know, now with the, you know, the internet and our, our kind of global society of Japanese woodworkers is pretty small to see. You know, folks like Andrew Wren, who are really, really focused on really getting planes to work well. Boy, it's mind-blowing. If I had seen that 30 years ago, I know it would have blown my mind. Yeah, yeah. You know, got guys that are uh, pursuing uh, that level of perfection. Andrew's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he sees this. Yeah, yeah. Well, Andrew is coming this uh, at the end of the month. Uh, he's, he's, he's. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing him. I had, it's been a long time. I don't think I've seen him since uh, your mini Kez in uh, wow. Brooklyn. Wow, that's many a number years. of years ago. Yeah, yeah. This uh, yeah coming up. No, in a few weeks we'll be we'll be in Maine for the for the festival. And then you'll be presenting on uh, Kana, Japanese plane tuning. You think I'm also going to be uh, um, kind of delving into uh, discussions on uh, on steel um, and on uh, you know the construction of Japanese blades and tapping mm -hmm. out and you know what what happens when uh, you know what's really going on with uh, with Udadashi which I think there's a lot of disinformation on out there, out there in the world, but kind of in the last 10 years, developing a hobby of uh, bladesmithing, you know, has given me some new insight into what steel is and what Japanese blades, uh, how they function and how to get them to work mm -hmm. better. So I've, I've got some insight as a, as a bladesmith uh, that I didn't have uh, when I was just a carpenter. And what I want to try to do while I'm up there is maybe weed through a little bit of the disinformation uh, around two-layer blades and the purpose of it and why wrought iron is such a wonderful material mm. and maybe uh, uh, erase some of the mystique around blue steel and white steel and things like that. I'll, I'll, I'm certainly looking forward to bringing up 
Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to listening. Yeah, a lot of the, uh, some of the visual demonstrations that I'm preparing, I think are going to be uh, eye-opening to a lot of people. We're, we're really good at looking at minutiae in the small, and I'm hoping that uh, some larger scale visual demonstrations of what is happening when you tap out a blade mm. will help people understand and not be so afraid. A lot of people, when they're first uh, learning about tapping out a blade, and I know I was, I was scared. You know, I was, I was frightened and I really didn't understand uh, mechanically what's happening. Uh, but uh, playing around with uh, tool smithing has, get, has broadened my understanding of what went into design and developing Japanese two-layer blades. Mm. Yeah, I was scared too, of course. Everybody should be a little bit scared of tapping out. Um, a, a healthy respect, maybe. A healthy, yeah, a healthy respect. And then the, you haven't actually lived until you've cracked at least two. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, hopefully, uh, in my demonstration, some of those questions will get worked out and some of uh, the necessary direction um, that people need to have prior to jumping into that um, will be eased a little bit. Yeah. The visual demonstrations that I have prepared, I'm sure there's going to be some wows <laughs> going on. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to it because that I never had that. And, uh, you know, and like I said, uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of disinformation available that I think have set some on the wrong track. And, uh, I've really spent a lifetime, um, trying to weed through, information that is available to come to an understanding of what's really going on. And I think that'll uh, be helpful to a lot of people. Oh yeah. Yeah. Amazingly help. Yeah. As a teacher, that's a lot of the work is actually <laughs> weeding through like this story and that story has been told over and over, but that doesn't mean it's true. And right. Exactly. Here's the context and, here is where maybe it came from, but in actuality. And, sure, and then a lot of it, I mean, for me, uh, you know, like I said, my first, my first teacher was a, a, a tool importer. Mm. Uh, he could spin a tale. Oh, good storyteller. Really good storyteller. And um, his, but his, ultimately as a tool salesman, his focus was on mm. selling tools, mm. <laughs> not on uh, uh, providing uh, accurate mm. information. And if he could sell a tool by telling a story, he would tell a story. <laughs> so I'm, hopefully I can, uh, I can thin out a little bit of the confusion and misinformation. Yeah, yeah, I'm very eager to hear yeah, your thoughts on that. Well, at some point, too, we're going back in time now. But aren't you a vet? No, no, I'm not. Oh, no. Oh, okay. Just in support of. In support of. So somewhere yeah, in the timeline, I was like, and wait, didn't you have a stint somewhere? <laughs> no. Okay. No. Okay. No. Yeah, it didn't seem to fit in somehow, time-wise. I, I, interesting around that is uh, after high school, you know, wondering what I'm going to do with the rest of my life, uh, I was this close to joining the Navy. Oh. But I told the recruiter that I wanted to be a builder. Mm. And at the same time, I had applied at uh, Holt Millwork, the uh, the first cabinet maker mm -hmm. I worked for. The day I was supposed to sign to join the Navy, he called and offered me a job. So <laughs> I told the Navy, "Now nah, I got a job already." <laughs> so I avoided um, that. You know, admire those that do mm -hmm. serve. Wonderful. All right. Maybe in closing, the craft, the trade, using our hands. Not an easy path, especially when it comes to finance often. What's kept you going? Uh, it's really all I've ever done. So uh, I don't know that I would make a different choice uh, ever. To be honest, choosing the life of a craftsman has almost been selfish. 
because I do get a lot of enjoyment out of it. Craft has always uh, fed in me something that I don't think anything else could. But I'm sure you know that uh, making the decision to to spend your life as a as a woodworker, the people around me um, have also had to sacrifice. Oh yeah, you know, uh, probably certainly could have uh, made a whole lot more money if I chose to build McMansion two by four houses. But to me, there wasn't, it wasn't even really a question. My life has literally been um, following one opportunity after another with not a whole lot of uh, forethought. And, you know, I think I've done okay. You know, a lifetime as a woodworker has served me and has served my family. So um, for that, I'm, I'm pretty fortunate. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my father, you know, as I said in the beginning of this interview, was a policeman, and, uh, you know, he took that job primarily to support a large family. You know, I'm glad that uh, I didn't choose that path because I don't think he was very happy mm. <laughs> being mm. a policeman, you know? So I've got the benefit of uh, being able to use some of the talents that I've been graced to have. And, you know, I've supported a, a family and have enjoyed myself doing it uh, almost in a selfish way. So, yeah, I have no regrets at all. Oh, I'm, I'm very glad. Yeah, of course. Hey, kind of you go with what you know, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, everybody everybody has a different path. As long as you're happy with what what you're doing, what you've done, that's really a, yeah, I can't imagine another way. All right, well. Well, great talking with you. All right, yeah, thank you, Jim. Thank you for your time. We'll see you in Maine in a few weeks. Yeah, getting excited. Yes, same here. Okay, take care. Take care.